talking to couples who are living together on this edition of Truth in Love. My name's Heath Lambert, and you're listening to Truth in Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions to the problems that people face. Our guest this week is Dr. Kevin Carson, who is a counselor certified with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. He is a pastor of Sunrise Baptist Church and a professor of biblical counseling at Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. I asked Kevin to join us this week to talk about how we would address and deal with couples who are living together but who are unmarried. Kevin, you know, because this is a emphasis of yours, that this can be an issue that gets people in a lot of trouble. I think back to some of the most trouble I've been in in local church ministry, and it's had to do with this issue. One point, I was preaching a sermon on Hebrews 13 and honoring the marriage bed and keeping it pure, and I encouraged the congregation to not live together, that one of the ways they could dishonor the marriage bed would be by cohabitating. And there was a firestorm in the church after that. I did not realize that there were about 12 couples in the church who were living together unmarried, and that did not go over very well. And I had a local church pastor who heard about the sermon and told me, I better never preach sermons like that again. Oh, wow. And so it was just, I was amazed by that. It was my first year in ministry, and, and I came to see that folks are nervous about addressing this issue because it can be so upsetting to the folks who've actually made a decision to live together. So for people who are listening to this, a pastor, a parent, a sibling, a friend, a church member who knows someone who is living together with somebody to whom they're not married, and they're nervous about bringing this up and the consequences that might come from it. Why, why do Christians need to address these issues with our brothers and sisters in Christ? First, let me say that I appreciate the apprehension that friends, parents, and pastors may have as they seek to engage a couple living together who are not married. We value relationships and probably have heard of horror stories like the one you just told, or at least have daydreamed when we need to talk to somebody about how poorly it might go over. This is an important issue for several reasons. As individuals who follow Christ, we want to do everything for God's glory, which includes thinking and acting in ways which honor God. So this also would include valuing what God values. Clearly, God values marriage, so we also must value marriage. So if a particular lifestyle choice, such as living together, not married, doesn't honor God, then we must think through the consequences of those choices. We know that life is generally better for any person who lives in a way that honors God. If a person decides not to live for God's glory, typically life is harder, which is often what we call the law of the harvest. So this choice to live together outside of marriage affects their relationship with God. As we consider this couple that we love, we want God's best for them. And at the same time, we want them to give their best for God. Thus, it's important that we be willing to talk with them. Furthermore, since we also love this couple, Romans 13, 8 and 10 become important for our thinking. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So this brings up two different issues. If we love this couple, we must try to help them think through this issue. Because if we fail to try to do our part to help them, then we're not loving them. We at least potentially help keep them in a situation 
which does not honor God and for which God holds them responsible. So if we know what is good for them, but allow fear to keep us from talking with them, then we're the ones not doing the loving thing and potentially increasing God's disfavor in their lives. Here's the second issue. Romans 13 helps us think through the fact that since true biblical love, the kind that fulfills the law, the kind that pleases God, the kind that is based off of selflessness, the kind that Jesus Christ demonstrated on the cross, the kind that we are told to imitate in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Since true biblical love does not cause harm to its neighbor, yet we know that living together as a man and a woman in a committed relationship outside of marriage does invite God to bring reproof, correction, and discipline to this my closest neighbor is in this unbiblical relationship and, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, defrauds my neighbor, then this relationship can't be based upon true biblical love. Although the love shared together may be pleasing, it may be enjoyable, it may be pleasurable, it's not Christ's love because true biblical Christ-like love is selfless and doesn't cause harm for the neighbor. Therefore, since we love this couple, it's essential that even though we're apprehensive, we seek to help them any way we can. So it's, it's interesting because our love for God and our love for our neighbor who's caught in a sinful struggle is going to drive us to want to say things and engage in their life in a way that might make us uncomfortable. It will. Okay. So someone's listening to this and they say, okay, I'm going to love someone. I'm going to love someone in a hard and in a challenging way, but I want to do that well. What are some strategies that you would recommend to us to keep in mind as we pursue this kind of encounter so that we could have the greatest chance of it going well? Well, that's a great question, Heath, and take some time to think through wisely. Let me suggest just a few key ideas to consider. First, we want to enter into the conversation as learners. Listen for what drives this couple's heart or thinking. Seek to discern the reasons for choosing to live together without being married. There are a number of reasons that I've heard over the years, including uh, making sure it's going to work before they totally commit. Sometimes in the country we call it kicking the tires or taking it for a test drive. (laughs) right? So they check it out before commitment takes place. If they were to get married, one or both of them might lose their benefits, which could include benefits from an insurance policy from a deceased parent, retirement benefits from a deceased spouse, loss of benefits received through previous divorce or other kinds of benefits. Another one I've heard is, and it fits the general idea, that some couples believe they're not ready to get married yet, but it's too expensive to live separately, so they choose to live together. And then some may not know it is anything more than non-traditional. They might not know that the Bible actually has something to say about it, that 1 Thessalonians 4 causes immorality and says to flee immorality. They may not be aware of that. So it's important that we begin as learners. We also want to enter the conversation with a clear understanding that what we are discussing is simply sin. And what do we know about sin? We know that we share the same sin nature as they. So in other words, we're sinners too. So this conversation is between sinners. I think this helps us remember to be humble in our approach and reminds us of God's grace both for this couple as well as ourselves as we have this conversation. Plus, there are some other practical strategies to help us as we plan to discuss this issue. But let me just mention at least one more. Don't assume anything about their walk with Christ. First and foremost, of course, do they have a personal relationship with Christ? But also, we want to be aware of what this couple knows about living for Christ. What do they think about their purpose in life? Do they understand biblical decision-making? 
Do they understand how to deal with lust? Do they understand God's purpose for sex or God's purpose for marriage? Do they understand sin and repentance? All of these questions flow out of our general understanding of discipleship and sanctification. Potentially, there's where the problem lies. It's not an all-out effort to not please God in their lives. Instead, it's simply they've never thought through the issues in a way that can be beneficial. So those are some things we should do. What about some things we should avoid? We don't want to assume that our instincts on this are always right. What are some mistakes that we can make as we draw near to people to try to help them with this sin? Yeah, another great question. Let me just mention two things. First, we do not want to approach a couple with a problem without having thought through some possible solutions. Hmm. What practical help are you going to provide if they take what you say seriously and decide to separate? Another way of thinking about it is this. What hindrances stand in the way of them making a decision to follow Christ in the matter of living together unmarried? Once you think about and through these issues, then you have to decide what can you do to help? Are you willing, for instance, to allow someone to stay in your home? Are you willing to help them get an apartment? Is there a garage apartment or a mother-in-law suite available from someone in the church that you could offer? Are you willing to help pack boxes and move them? Uh, do you have some money to share to get a hotel room for a couple nights until they can get it worked out? Here's my point. You do not want to go to confront this couple without some pointed, specific help that you can also offer them. You don't want to give them the law without offering them some potential means of fulfilling it. Plus, we don't want to assume that this is the most important issue to deal with first. There may be much bigger issues in the lives of this couple that are more important than the issue of living together. I'm not suggesting in any way that this issue is not important, because it is. It is vitally important. However, we must use discernment to know when to address this issue versus some other issues in the life of the counselee. So just the other day, I was speaking with a woman who uh, has a son, a grown son. He's living with a woman. They're not married. She's talked with him about that, but they haven't changed their lifestyle, and she uh, invited him to come home for Christmas and he said that he would only come home for Christmas if his girlfriend could stay in the bedroom with him mm. at her home. And she said no. And it went very, very badly. Uh, they're very much estranged now. Uh, he doesn't want anything to do with her. Neither does this young lady want anything to do with her boyfriend's mom. And this woman is just devastated. She's trying to honor the Lord. She's trying to point out sin to her son. She's trying to say, hey, there's some things we can do in our home, and there's some things we can't do, and this is one of them. And she is just devastated about the distance in her relationship with her son. What would you say to a woman like that who's addressed this issue, it's gone poorly, and now there is distance in that relationship? Well, I think there's a few things to think about. First... The, this lady or any particular person or couple would have to ask, when I initially brought it up, did I come at it from a heart of humility? Did I come at it with words that represented God's grace as well as represented truth? Uh, did I speak in ways that allowed the person listening to hear my heart and love for them versus my heart and love for a particular principle? Uh, so I would say that's the first issue. Did I come at it humbly? Another question is, what's my general attitude? Is this like a bobblehead so that you can't miss it? You look at a person and all you can see is the fact that this bobblehead's going back and forth. 
So is it a bobblehead issue? So that every time you think about this issue, is that the primary thing on, their, on your mind? Or is it their general walk with Christ, whether or not they're honoring God in other areas? Uh, so I would say put it in the bigger perspective and consider what your attitude is. A third thing would be uh, when they are around you and when you spend time with other family members, does it become an issue of gossip? Or is there always this sense of awkwardness? Um, and then do you, another thing you could do is ask yourself, how often do I try to love this person that's living with my son or my daughter? Mm-hmm. Am I creatively serving them? Am I sending them notes? Do I tell them I pray for you? And pray for you in terms of general life, not pray for you to repent and change. Yeah. Now, I don't think a parent should change their house rules. Right? That's really on the son that he's not willing to submit to his parents because there's a mutual respect there that ought to mm-hmm. happen. But in general terms, it's usually the pressures on the one that confronts and the pressures at the attitudinal level. Are they full of humility such that they're willing to deal with this issue and keep it in its proper perspective and then deal with their child and their relationship in general and just see this as one area they need to change? It's not the area. It's not make or break. In God's timing, sometimes those relationships produce children. And the best thing those children need is a grandparent that loves them and is honoring to God and is trying to serve them. So you have to ask yourself, is this the issue that I want to wage war over? Or is it something I want to deal with and then keep moving, hopefully, to see repentance in multiple areas? You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. If you'd like more information about our ministry, you can visit us at www.biblicalcounseling.com.